Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome, everybody, back to the MVM Show. We got another podcast today. Very excited and uh, pumped, to say the least, to have the guest on that we have today. Um, we met through some uh, piloting uh, places that we shared the same job at a time, and I was so glad that I got to meet this gentleman and have the opportunity to talk to him. I wish I could have spent more time talking to him in person, but now that's what the cool thing about a podcast is, guys, is we can get to sit there and chit-chat, and that's kind of what I want this podcast to be, is something where we can just sit down, have a cup of coffee, and just chat across the table. So I think you guys really enjoy this. Uh, today I have with me Ken Carlton, and I'm going to introduce him right now, and he's going to talk, and we're going to, Ken, if you can, just just start out, we'll start out going right into your, your back history and you kind of where you grew up and as a child and kind of roll on from there. Sure. Um, I'm actually a uh, uh, California native, was born in California and raised in the uh, Shafter Wasco area, which is a far, in those days, and I think it still is a farming community. And actually, am one of those guys that picked potatoes and cotton when I was a kid. And um, my parents, uh, fortunately for me, bought a gas station. And then I end up getting uh, upgraded to uh, pumping gas at my dad's gas station in Shafter. That's a little bit of an upgrade. <laughs> it was. And I was happy to do it after picking cotton, which was miserable work. Did Now, did you... Were you drafted? Now we're going to talk. Go into the Vietnam guys, and this yeah. is where I want hit you, Ken, sure. just to tell us, just just talk, just talk about it. And um, were you drafted, or did you? How'd that I, work? I was. Uh, that was in '66. I was a uh, a uh, uh, I was in college at uh, Taft College, uh, playing football mostly, uh, not really uh, paying much attention to school. And because my grades were so high, and I was such a scholar. The Army drafted me. If you, uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you for laughing. Uh, so I went to Fort Ord uh, and um, 
I took all the tests and everything, and uh, they go, hey, would uh, would you like to be an officer? And I said, what do they do? And, and and they said, well, those are the guys that have the black stripes on their pants, on the side of their pants, and they don't do a darn thing. This was a sergeant telling me. They're lazy and don't do a thing. I said, hey, that's the job for me. So <laughs> I uh, went to OCS in Fort Benning, Georgia, and then after OCS, went to Army Flight School, um, uh, starting at uh, Fort Walters, Texas. And uh, see, I started flight school in 68. Uh, and then and that, and then uh, eventually ended up in Vietnam in 1969. Now, did you get to choose to be a pilot? Or, I mean, were they hurting so bad for pilots at that time? I mean... Well, um, actually, what happened, I was at Fort Benning, and I was a brand-new second lieutenant. And... Um, I, a couple of my friends had already been to Vietnam and already been killed. Uh, they, uh, a couple of them were killed the first week they was over there that I went to OCS. And I thought, you know, maybe I should do something a little bit safer. So be it rather than being an infantry second lieutenant. Um, and so I, uh, I applied for flight school and I had the, the, uh, the grades and the, um, I'd taken the tests for it and passed all that stuff. I was a- an avid aviator before I ever got to fly, um, um, just a quick story how how I become an avid aviator um, in, at at my church. Uh, if my Sunday school teacher owned a Luscombe uh, airplane, and it's an old, old, really an old airplane. I think it was a nineteen forty six or forty five airplane. And he said if anybody would come to Sunday school for a whole year without missing, he would give them a ride in his airplane. Well, I was the only kid that did that and I went out and got a ride in that airplane and I was hooked. I think I was about 11 years old and I dreamed about flying from that point on. So when the army was looking for helicopter pilots in 1968, uh, I was really excited about it and volunteered for that and uh, was um, put in flight school. And just so you'll know, I, uh, I uh, uh, soloed in eight hours is one of the, as a, the lowest time wow. solo student in my in my class. So I had some natural ability, um, and, and, and was uh, with a lot of luck. Okay. Now, what were, what were you training in Ken when you first start, were you trained straight in a Huey or? No, when we first started out, we called them Mattel Messerschmitts. They were, uh, uh, you would know them as a Hughes 300. And I think they're made by Schweitzer now, but they're, uh, very, uh, very, uh, light touch on the controls. Very, very, um, uh, unstable in some respects, but once you learned how to fly one of those, then everything else was, uh, you know, pretty easy. The Huey, for example, is it probably at least twice as easy to fly as any of the trainers that I flew. The other trainers that were out there were Bell 47s, which you've flown, and mm-hmm. um, OH 23s, which were the Hillers. And uh, I was flying the uh, TH-55 is what was the Army's designation of the uh, Mattel Messerschmitt. Okay. Yeah, because I wonder when they switched over to actually flying the 58s for training or whatever they that was. Them. Yeah, that was later. And, you know, here's the thing about that kind. I really feel fortunate that I learned how to fly with the throttle. And I had yeah. the manly uh, because... Later on, I would take uh, check rides uh, months later, and they'd say, okay, you've had a fuel control failure. And it was absolutely a no sweat for me, having trained on throttles, to manually operate the fuel control on a Huey or any other aircraft as far as that goes. Hmm. 
Now, how long was flight school in the army at that time? I mean, how long were they were they pushing people through pretty fast? Or, well, um, it was eight eight months, and uh, you had two phases. Uh, the first phase was just basic stuff and solo, pre-solo and solo, and then some uh, no tactics or anything, just learning how to fly the helicopter. And that was about a hundred hours, uh, eighty to a hundred hours. And that was mostly done at Fort Walters, Texas, which is out uh, west of uh, Fort Worth uh, uh, by Mineral Wells. Anyway, uh, after that, you would go to one of two places. You'd go to Fort Rucker, Alabama, or Hunter Army Airfield in Georgia. And I went to Hunter Army Airfield because I was on a track at that point to fly gunships. So when you went to Hunter, you got an instrument ticket which not all Army pilots got an instrument ticket out of flight school. Some of them got what they uh, was called a tactical instrument ticket. And uh, I got a real instrument ticket and got to fly uh, gunships while I was in flight school. Uh, and I, uh, I graduated from that, and I had about one week of leave. Normally, they tried to give us uh, a month of leave before Vietnam, but they were so uh, short of pilots in 1969 uh, wow. by that time that I went straight over to Vietnam, basically. Wow. Now, were you, I mean, how, now how old were you at this time when you finished up uh, high school? 20, uh, uh, I was a first lieutenant by that time, 21 years old, and I had 205 hours, which, uh, as you well know, it's just sort of a license to uh, to learn. And yeah. uh, I didn't realize how much I didn't know. That's, that's not saying very much about me, but um, not anything good about me, but I didn't know how much I didn't know until I got to Vietnam. I bet. Well, that's, and that's the thing is looking back now the same way, you know, it's like, I thought I was actually had quite a bit of hours when I had a couple hundred hours. Like I felt like I knew, I, I didn't think I was perfect. And I don't think, you know, I don't think you did either, but you just kind of thought, yeah, you, you know, <laughs> it's like, you don't even have a scratch on the surface yet. That's right. That's exactly right. But, um, okay. So now rolling into now, this is where we could probably get and just feel free to, talk for 30 straight minutes about something if you want but let's roll into uh we're now well let me ask you this first were you pretty like were you excited to go because you know the mindset of younger people at times a little different than what we have some yeah i i um actually when i got drafted it was somewhat of a relief the whole military thing i enjoyed and mainly because uh you know i played football all the way through high school and a couple of years in college and and uh, uh, army wasn't any tougher than football. The coaches were were sub were now called uh, drill sergeants, and uh, <laughs> you know I had I had no um, I had no uh, big fear of going to Vietnam. Uh, probably should have, have uh, but um, I was I was eager to go see what was over there. You know, and um, this was in 1969. Uh, it was actually the beginning of the end of Vietnam. Um, they started downsizing towards the end of my year over there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now going, just kind of walk us through just your first getting ready to get on the, the airplane or whatever you got on to start heading over there, you know, just. Well, um, I wore khakis, and that was a, sort of a Class A uniform, and I got to Saigon, and I should have known there was something up when uh, they go, hey, uh, there's a helicopter here waiting for you, and I'm thinking, gee, I must really be important. I wasn't important. What it was is they needed pilots. They were a lot of the pilots were flying 180 hours a month, and 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 and, you, and this is in combat, and so you you understand the yeah. issue there, and that was probably part of the reason why there were so many helicopter crashes in Vietnam. The guys were just tired, but 
I was flown immediately to Dongham, which was just uh, about 100 miles west of uh, Saigon and in the, the Delta region, nice and flat down there, and rice fields and lots of rivers. And anyway, flew into Dongham right in the middle of a mortar attack, and they dumped me out of the helicopter. And I looked around, and the round, uh, mortar rounds were hitting a, about 100 yards away. So I ran and jumped in a culvert, which was underneath the runway to sort of drain the water away from the runway. And there was already like 10 guys in there. And one of them goes, hey, Lieutenant, stay in the door. You'll stop any shrapnel that comes th through the yeah." Uh. <laughs> so I did. And lo and behold, a round went off right above us, which, you know, it was three feet of dirt above us in a culvert. But it rang our ears and a piece of shrapnel hit the uh, inside of the culvert and rolled at my feet and sizzled in the water. There was about a, three inches of water in that culvert. Wow. And I reached down and picked it up. I still have that. And wow. you know what? It, I, that was the first time I thought, oh, man, this is serious stuff, you know? Yeah. So I uh, 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 went into my company area and uh, a rocket, a 122 rocket, a 122 millimeter rocket had gone through the roof of my new unit for uh, the company commander, the operations officer, several other warrant officer pilots and some enlisted guys were looking at a map and killed everybody in the command group just hours before I got there. So um, I was sort of, uh, I, my brass was hanging off, you know, I mean, I, I looked a mess because I've been in, in a uh, culvert and got wet. And uh, the new company commander came right down from battalion. And by the way, the name of this, the, the number of this company was a 191st Assault Helicopter Company. Okay. We were part of the 1st Aviation Brigade, but we were assigned to the 9th Infantry Division there at Dongtam. We supported the 9th quite uh, every day. Anyway, the new company commander came down and he says, hey, you're the new platoon leader. Um, and uh, good luck. And uh, you're uh, one of the older warrants will take you out on an orientation flight. And so I'm still in my khakis. I borrow a helmet and uh, I go out and jump in a uh, Charlie model Huey, which is a, um, uh, a fantastic flying helicopter. It's got the rotor system of a Cobra. It's called a 540 rotor system and went out for an orientation flight. And I don't even rem remember much about it, but I just know that uh, I was a little bit numb from seeing all the carnage in the operations room. I don't want to get specific, but it was, uh, it was really bad. It was the first time I'd seen dead people. And, um, uh, I'd let a, even though I was a rough and tough, uh, high schooler from in, in the central Valley and did a lot of duck hunting, um, and hunting all over, uh, it still was a shock to me to see all that. Yeah. That, that's not the, <laughs> it's a whole different ball game. It is. I and remember. I, uh, but, um, I'm sort of resilient, I think, um, uh, so I, I started being the platoon leader and, um, um, but I, I was not an aircraft commander, obviously I only had 200 hours. And my uh, first aircraft commander was a warrant officer, Hamilton. He said, Hey, if you can hover this out of the revetment, you can fly it all day. I said, hey, no problem, man. I've got 205 hours of helicopter time. <laughs> I could not get that helicopter out of the revetment because it was overloaded they we all we flew overloaded all the time we we're above gross weight for that mm -hmm. altitude and temperature and um i was bleeding off because i was uh the rotor rpm was going down because i was uh, moving the cyclone too much i was and, stirring the pot uh, a little bit 
yeah, as spilling off the air from the my cushion. And so finally he took the controls and hovered out and we, we started flying and um we were my my uh, assault uh, my gun platoon I flew on an average of six to eight hours a day, sometimes ten, and that's a lot of flight time. And I ended up flying eleven hundred and forty hours of combat time in in uh, eleven months. Wow! So that's, that you know we were flying every day. I haven't flown that much, uh, Ken, in my busiest year of ag, and that's that is insane. That's <laughs> that's a lot of hours in combat. And, combat. People and, don't understand. It, you're trying to sleep, and and my crew chief. Here, here's the thing, you know, in, in a Huey gunship, you have a gun uh, a gunner in the back and a crew chief, and they're they're manning M60s. And I remember this uh, light colonel came out. He he turned out to be a friend of mine later on. We got we got along really good, but he was he jumped on my case because my crew chief and gunner were sleeping in the back of the helicopter. And I said, look, they stayed up all night working on this helicopter. Well, they got to get sleep sometime, and. Um, so I would go to bed at night. My crew, after flying all day with me and uh, a lot of turns being shot at, holes through the helicopter, um, they would still be out there working till one or two in the morning, getting the helicopter daily and ready for the next morning flight. And we were taking off at uh, six o'clock every morning, you know, five thirty, six o'clock. Now, what was your? I mean, so you guys were a gunship, right? Yes, we had uh, rockets on it and mini guns and. Uh, Two door gunners, and then we we basically were the escorts for the uh, Hueys that were flying the troops into these combat assaults. They, we called uh-huh. the Hueys uh, slicks, uh, like uh, slicks, like in you don't have any rockets or miniguns. Right. And um, they, those guys were the real heroes because they're flying tight formations, ten ship formations, uh, staggered trail. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com and we'd go into these areas that were really hot. One of the areas that we flew in and out, um, if anybody knows anything about Vietnam, they'll, they might recognize this name, the uh, Yumin Forest, Yumin Forest. It uh, takes up a lot of area. It's a national park down there now, by the way. But there was an NVA division there that we didn't know about at that time. So every time we went down there, it was a big fight. And these guys would uh, drop off troops and both door gunners on both sides would be firing away and we'd be firing rockets and minigun into the tree line and uh, and and occasionally you'd land right next to some heavy weapons you would you wouldn't know they were there and it was a, a real free-for-all uh, uh, i got a hel- uh, my a hole shot in my helmet uh, oh, you know i've got that helmet setting i'm looking at it right now but um um you know it was a uh, it was just a uh one continual gunfight you know this some one of the things that probably irritated me after i came home and i'll, I'll come back to these combat assaults i had guys uh from world war ii really looking down their nose at us and i think that's no longer the case but at the time uh in the 70s and they they would you know they made some uh landing maybe uh at omaha beach or maybe they did a parachute landing into holland right. uh, 
maybe they were at Sicily. My dad was a World War II veteran in Sicily. They'd be in combat for maybe 30 to 60 days generally, and then they'd be pulled out. I was in combat every day. We had no days off, uh, except when I went to R&R to meet my wife in Hawaii. I was in combat every day, and you had no time off, and you, it was for a whole year. So guys came home, they were a little dingy, and I, I can certainly certainly understand that. But anyway, back to our combat assault. Well, we, Ken, uh, stay there for a second, because that's interesting. I never knew that. About, was that was that like that for all World War II people? Not that that makes it any less, but I mean— were they, No, was, I, listen, it's not taking anything away from the No, I know it's vets, not, definitely. But—, but but the fact of the matter is they were not in the war, uh, in the combat fighting. They would be rest and recuperation back in England or wherever. <clears throat> and even in the Pacific, which was bloody for the uh, Army and the Marines and the Navy, that usually was over within a month or two, and then they would, they would be pulled back. Well, um, that, that's interesting, though, because how – I, I also got I, – I guess I've – I kind of knew that, but I didn't really even think about it because if they were hurting for they were hurting for people really bad in Vietnam, they were hurting for people real bad. I, I would think right in World War II. So how are they allowing that break like that? I mean, what like what was different from then to Vietnam where they couldn't? You know what I'm saying? I mean, they yeah, don't well, even they don't even do that for Afghanistan or Iraq. They never did that. They didn't do that kind of stuff. You know, the nature the nature of um, asymmetrical warfare where you're you're not dealing with front lines or, or uh, you know, uh, battles like you saw in, in, in World War II is that even when you're not in a fight, you're subject to being shot or mortared back at your base camp, you know. Uh, 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 so uh, they, uh, they just didn't have enough people in Vietnam that were uh, 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 trigger guys that could pull the trigger of, I think for every guy that was in the infantry, not, uh, and the odds would even be higher for a helicopter pilot, but for every guy that was in the infantry, there was like eight or 10 support people. Uh, and so the guys that were 11 Bravos, the infantry guys, the real heroes of Vietnam, they were far and few between when you looked at the total numbers. I One time I figured it out, while I was in Vietnam, there was about 900,000 people in Vietnam, and there was about 40,000 of actually engaged in, in combat. Wow. But they were engaged in it every day. Mm -hmm. So, and, and it was like the helicopter pilots, you know, and I w I'll be the first to say when I went back to the base at night, uh, I got I got a shower and some food and got to sleep for six or seven hours. And in, in the infantry was laying in some foxhole in the mud. Yeah. So th those guys were the real heroes. Right. No, I, yeah, I agree. I just interesting to hear about that. The, the, just different wars, different, totally different setups. Sure. You know? and, and, I, and I see this all the time. Um, I see people say, well, that never happened. Well, yeah, it probably didn't because you didn't see it happen. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a lot of different wars going on. And so I try and cut people slack when they tell me something like um, this one guy said uh, on the Internet. Uh, I don't remember exactly what venue it was, but he said that he watched a guy uh get his uh, foot caught in a cargo net and when a Chinook lifted up the cargo net trapped his foot and lifted him up and then finally somebody uh, noticed it and the Chinook came back sat down once the net released back down he was able to pull his foot out of there and and they go that never happened I said well it very well could have happened more than once you know you, you, there was weird things that happened in Vietnam um, yeah
Okay, so, so back, anyway, yeah, back to your. Anyway, the combat assaults uh, usually involved the 9th Infantry Division, and they had fire support bases around Dongtam. The fire support bases were Danger, let's see, Danger, Schroeder, one other, no, I'll think of it in a minute, Danger, Schroeder, and uh, whatever. Anyway, those were battalions. That was a battalion in each fire support base, and every day we would pick up a company and uh, insert them uh, and land them out in the field someplace, and they would, uh, they, they would be involved in some big, big, big battles. Um, this is sort of interesting. Um, one of those battalions uh, had a battalion surgeon by the name of Brian Holly, and uh, he made contact with me last year because he found somebody that knew me on a, another website, and he said, hey, do you remember a certain day in May in 1969? I said, yeah, I do, and uh, there's been a couple of books uh, written about it, and anyway, he uh he says, well, uh, you know, Colonel Hackworth, who has written several books, he's now deceased. Uh, he was the battalion commander. He mentioned you guys because um, if it hadn't been for the bounty hunters, that was our call sign. I was bounty hunter six. Um, we, we think that we might have, you know, had a lot of people killed that day. And um, it was a very, very close, close battle. Uh, matter of fact, right prior to this particular event, just prior to that, I saw about 30 bodies laying all laid out side by side enemy enemy they had their their guns were laying next to them so i called the uh infantry uh guy up on the ground i don't know if he was a sergeant or lieutenant and i said hey if you guys really have time to go around and position those bodies for, for photos because it sort of irritated me that's a lot of work to get those bodies laying side by side like that right along the trail he goes Bounty Hunter 6, that's the way they were shot, and that's the way they landed. That was an amb a very successful ambush. And I go, holy moly, there's a lot of enemy around when you can kill 30 of them at a, at a time on an ambush. Well, right after that, the infantry was hit hard at close range by machine guns, and they were pinned down. And they called for ammo, and all the slicks had gone back to Dongtam for refueling, and we were still out there. We would, After we uh, escorted the slicks to altitude, then we'd come back and support the infantry. And um, we, uh, I, I uh, uh, hovered a helicopter down next to some guys, and we gave them ammo. And uh, we were shooting them. Uh, door gunners were shooting into a bunker that was about 15 yards in front of the helicopter. So you get an idea. This was not all long-range stuff. There was some pretty hairy stuff at close range wow anyway brian holly contacted me and he said you know you were put in for a dfc and i said yeah I, and i said eventually when i got to alaska i finally noticed it showed up on some orders uh after vietnam i went to alaska and um i said uh it's on my uh, uh discharge form my uh 214 i think it's a dd214 yeah, DD two fourteen. It's on there. Which that's a, that just for anybody that doesn't know, a DFC is a distinguished flying cross. Oh, it's uh, the highest. Yeah. Well, for flying is yes. So, um, uh, Colonel Hackworth had put me in for it. It was dated much later, but uh, so Brian said, "Hey, look, um, why don't you come to Tampa to our reunion next year, and we'll have that award presented to you." So in October, um. I'm going to go to the uh, 9th Infantry uh, reunion, and uh, there's some one of the lieutenant that was there. This is this should bring cold chills up your spine. 
the lieutenant that was there was asked for a resupply end up being a three-star general and he's going to present that award to me wow yeah wow it's a, it makes me feel good about that and um I mean, I had the award. It was on the orders, and I have the order. But it, I, I think it would feel good to have the actually the award pinned on my chest. No, I and I well, does, I mean, that's fifty. How many years is that after the fact? <laughs> I, I mean, that's pretty crazy. But I, you know, I do want to say again, I, I, I didn't say it at the beginning, but I appreciate your service. It's I you can't I can't even. That's not even good enough to say. To be honest with you, I don't feel like, but. I mean, that's that's all I can do except to support, you know, the military now. But it's I, I can't even comprehend, you know, and I know from what you tell me, maybe let's get into a little bit of this. And that's I'm excited for you to be able to get that. It sounds like you're pretty, pretty happy too to be able to finally be able to uh, get that award. Not that, you know, I, when was it you noticed it? Because you said you didn't notice it on your orders till quite a bit later right yeah and it was on my dd214 of course that's after i discharged i i i you don't see your I, you don't, normally you don't see a dd214 till you discharge um the orders were squirreled away in my uh, form 66 is what the officers uh their their personnel file i think the enlisted guys are 201s or something like that but uh, it was squirreled away in there, and then when I got to look, and after I discharged, I saw, hey, I got a DFC, and then I looked in my uh, my uh, Form 66, and there was the orders. So I have the orders signed and everything, and then um, Hackworth wrote a book, and he had called me up and um, uh, to, to help him uh, sort of flesh out the uh, the particulars of that that battle, and I, wow. I just might say I might say that uh, he was quite quite an officer because when he took over that battalion their casualty weight went way down because he told me in flying a gunship he says you kill everybody that you think needs to be killed and i'll cover your six and that's what we did and all of a sudden our casualty weight went way down because we were uh, very aggressive in in uh, out in the field and if you were carrying a rifle and you were uh, in black pajamas or an NVA uh, uniform, we didn't have to call for permission to shoot. We just started shooting immediately, and that really saved a lot of lives right there. Well, let me ask you this, and that you bringing that up. Was there – was there? Um, so Hackworth was a battalion commander or – Yeah, he was a battalion commander, okay. but see, you had co company commanders and platoon commanders. Right. But Hackworth was a ha hands-on battalion commander. Uh -huh. Okay, so let me just tell you a little bit about him. Okay. He'd been in Korea. I believe he got the Silver Star like three times. He was like one wow. of the youngest guys ever to get a Silver Star in Korea. He ended up being uh, uh, a battalion commander, light colonel, when I knew him. And, uh, heck, you had to be really careful one day uh, later on after this battle where uh, he put me in for the DFC, um, I was flying a command and control helicopter and um, usually the platoon leader of the guns because of the tactics involved and all the radio calls and, and the interaction that we had with the infantry, they would move us into a, to fly this command and control helicopter. In the back seat was the province chief of Vietnamese and a forward artillery observer, Colonel Hackworth 
and uh, a radio operator, and it, they had about five or six different radios in the back seat, so they could talk to everybody. And one day, uh, after the uh, slips had gone back to Duncan for fuel, uh, a company of uh, NVA broke cover, was trying to disengage from the um, from the Ninth Division, which were uh, in the process of killing them. And uh, when they broke cover, I brought the helicopter down from its normal altitude of about 3,000 feet. And uh, we laid waste to them, and Hackworth was shooting up the back. They shot up all the ammo, uh, or Dorgan ammo, and they shot up all the M16 ammo. And Hackworth was trying to grab my Browning high power out of my shoulder holster. And I, and I slapped his hand away, and I said, Colonel, that's the last gun we have on board that has any ammo. So anyway, uh, that. That's the kind of guy he was. He, was he didn't mess around. No, he did not mess around. And as a result uh, of the rules of engagement that we had there, we had very few casualties once he took over. Okay. Now, as far as the rules of engagement, I mean, was there other battalion commanders that was like, oh, you need to identify first? Or was it pretty much every, I mean, I, in Vietnam, I don't, I don't see it ever being, but I'm, that's why I'm asking you. I don't ever see it being like it is today, but like. I mean, was there some guys in there that was very hard to deal with? Because once you're on the field, they have no way of Actually, knowing. Actually, I got to tell you, um, you know, you hear all this stuff about bad officers and stuff, but we had our uh, our chain of command was really quite supportive. Uh, I, you know, I was sort of low on. I was a captain by this time, by the way. I'd made captain over there. Um, I was getting really good support from my higher officers. My company commander was a major. He was out there with us quite often. He knew what was going on, and when they, uh, when I'd fly the CNC, I was head, I was the head guy, you know, for the aviation assets, and so uh, we had, uh, uh, just so you know, it wasn't just Army. We had uh, Air Force F4s, and occasionally uh, Navy uh, A7s uh, doing close air support for us. So, uh, you know, it was, a, <clears throat> it was, it was. I got, I felt, in my case, I was very fortunate, uh, and it it probably helped me survive that whole thing to have good officers. And, and I didn't have any bad ones that I ran across. And that's, and that's the thing that will just from what I see, I mean, that makes or breaks the whole, the whole thing. I mean, it breaks. Exactly. Know. I mean, you can have the, but I'm not saying that you can't have guys and they listed ranks and, and like, I, I, I can understand from your viewpoint, you know, as far as people saying bad officers, because I mean, I think that the reason they do that is because if you do have a bad officer, I mean, you're kind of hosed, it seems like, if you're down below, you know, in the chain of command. I mean, you still do right, no matter what, but it's just like, you can, I mean, I'm not even going to get into, like, my aspect of it from Afghanistan, because it was just, basically, we were so restricted, it was unbelievable, and it's a totally different time and era, but anyways, I... That's why things were done, you know, I believe in Vietnam and stuff like that. You guys, you guys had, I don't know, it's just, it's a different breed of people. Every, you know, nowadays it seems like everybody's worried about um, progression for their own self and not for the mission that's at hand. Well, think about this, this, um, this lieutenant general that's going to uh, present me with my DFC. He went from a second lieutenant in the infantry in heavy, heavy combat to a general. So as he went up through the ranks, you can imagine he had his act together, you know? So, um, 
you know, I, I, a lot of it depends on what their past, uh, you know, uh, what their past uh, uh, combat experience was. Maybe they had no combat experience. I, I feel sorry for some uh, infantry officer with no combat experience. They have a little award that uh, anybody that's out there listening to this, that if you want to know what the award that's really important to know uh, a lot about the individual you're talking to, it's called the CIB or Combat Infantry Badge. And what it is, it's a Kentucky long rifle. It's a blue background with a flintlock or a, a Kentucky rifle, long rifle on it, and a wreath, a silver wreath around it. And it's about maybe two and a half inches long and a half inch high. And that is the premier award that tells you that you're dealing with somebody that really knows what's up. Mm-hmm. And and so. and you know, uh, I'm gonna give you a little story, Ken, of something that happened in Afghanistan and how, what the people were awarded a CIB, and that's and it's frustrating because to me those things like you said right there, they people that have that are used to or maybe if they have it now from newer wars, it's it don't it might not mean the same, but the unfortunate thing is it takes away from people like you and people that actually seen combat you know we're in combat like heavy fighting and stuff and i'll give you a story in afghanistan uh they're you know they have um the big fences around and everything and we we got um mortared and stuff like that i think the closest thing that ever hit when we were there was probably i want to say because i seen it hit we were out working on the helicopters and uh, i'm gonna say 250 yards is probably 300 yards is probably the closest but you know, that I'll be honest with you, I just laughed because I guess humor in the military is a lot different. It, I'm sure it was for you guys, too, is a lot different than civilian people. <laughs> yes. under They don't understand yes. and think you're in fact, you posted something the other day on Facebook. I laughed because I was like, I totally get that. But other people are just like, man, you're you're heartless. How yeah, they, you think laugh at that? they think they think we're inappropriate. <laughs> yes, that's the word. So anyways. OK, so this rocket hit or mortar i'm sorry hit somewhere close it wasn't honestly it wasn't close it didn't mess up the building i mean it didn't no one got hurt nothing happened they end up awarding everybody and no offense to people that work in the post office at all i mean hey but everybody in that whole post office building the military's it was army um they all got awarded the uh cib and and it's well, like hey, hey, hey. Here's the deal with the CIB. Just so you know, I know a little bit about it because I was an infantry officer. Guess what? I don't have one, and I'll tell you why. I was never in combat in an infantry unit. I was in combat in an aviation unit supporting infantry. I don't have a CIB. Here's what the uh, the prerequisite is to be an infantry officer or enlisted and in an infantry unit involved in combat. So you may never hear a shot fired, and you could actually get a CIB. But but I, I'm not taking anything away from that CIB. Uh, uh, you're right. In this case right there, um, it's probably uh, it's probably hokey to say yeah, the well, least. But and that's and to me that's so disrespectful to people that have earned it or in the past. It's like you can't put the you know it's it's hard to say because you're not trying to put someone above the other person. It's not even about that. It's about this is what you experienced, this is what, what happened, and this is what you get. You know, they, I listen to this, when I when I was getting out-processed, 
basically my my time was up at the same time we got back from Afghanistan. And the uh, ladies that outprocessed, not ladies, well, it's men and ladies, but I think it was a lady that I had at mine. She's out processing. She's kind of typing everything out, making sure everything's correct on the DD-214. That's, I guess that's how they do it now. And she goes, I, I don't know how to word this properly, but she basically asked me, is there any awards that you think you're supposed to get or you were supposed <laughs> It's like, I looked at her so shocked. I was like, what? She's like, is there anything that I need to add as far as in the awards or anything section? I go, no. I go, she, she's all, do you want to, she actually, I'm not even going to say what she said, but She's like, do you want this or this? And I'm thinking, because these are civilian people, and I'm thinking, how? Why are you asking me this? Why? Why? And and I know why because it, it was just it, it just frustrated me. I was like, don't you write one single thing on mine? And I I didn't need anything and didn't deserve anything anyways because there was nothing in there I needed. But I just couldn't believe that she was asking me basically if I wanted to add some awards on my. Oh well, I think probably if you'd have said yes, then she'd have wanted to see the orders for them. You know, I mean, um, the, the ever award that you're, I think, unless mm-hmm. it's a unit award, you have a specific set of orders for it that says, you know, your name on it. But, well, she was like, do you want me to add this one? And I can't yeah. remember what it was now. And I was like, uh, no. I mean, I don't know. It was just kind of just seems like. Well, a- here's what here's here's where that D214 really helped me out. Um, you know, uh, I think I mentioned to you before. uh uh, you know, I stopped flying last year. Um, I felt fortunate to pass my flight physical at age 70, but um, my hearing is shot. And so I finally went down to the DA to see, uh, and they said, well, uh, you know, here, where's your 214? Here it is right there. And they look and they see helicopters, 1140 hours of combat helicopter time. And boom, they didn't even give me any, any heat. They just gave me a pair of hearing aids. So it was a prima facie evidence that I probably couldn't hear being around helicopters and, uh, you know, uh, your MOS, uh, you, you were, uh, a helicopter repairman. Um, your, your, your MOS that's on your DD-214 will allow you to do the same thing when your hearing gets as bad as mine. Mm. <laughs> Just so you know. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I'd like to see, I would, I'm curious what your charts look like because, because you, you have so many hours. How many hours do you have, Ken, besides all the civilian time and, and your, well, if I count my civilian time, I have in helicopters. I have about fifteen five, wow. and then uh, and uh, then I have about another three or four thousand, maybe thirty five hundred hours in airplanes. Uh, which is take uh, flying airplane is like taking a bath with your socks on. It's really not that exciting after you've been flying <laughs> helicopters. <laughs> well, that's a perfect recipe for no hearing. I can tell you, I hit. Uh, that's crazy. That's about oh, you're basically about twenty thousand hours. I, I hit. Oh no, I can't even remember now. I don't know. I was, I think it was seven, <laughs> eight thousand somewhere in there. I don't. Or I do yeah. it once a year. I check my logbook. Well, I, you, I, hey, after about five thousand, I I really I really didn't start uh, counting my hours uh, until I uh, retired from the Forest Service, started fighting fires as a contractor. Now all of a sudden they're breathing down my neck on mm-hmm. hours, recent hours, and all that stuff. So I had to go back and reconstitute my uh, logbook from my uh, flight <laughs> records. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Let's go in. Uh, we we've, we've been here on here about forty minutes. I, I don't want to keep you too long. If uh, if we want to, if you are okay with an hour or whatever, it's good too. But uh, let's go into some details that I know you mentioned, and I don't want to blurt it out because I don't want to be wrong in my 
remembrance because my memory's terrible. But didn't you have some issues with the helicopters going down in Vietnam or something like that? Yeah, well, um, you know, the Charlie model has two hydraulic systems. And um, one day we're flying along and some guy uh, got a lucky shot. It came through my front windshield, went through my helmet. I have this helmet, by the way. Uh, I think I mentioned that earlier. And uh, then it went through the number two hydraulic system. And you don't really have a lot of choice. Uh, <clears throat> there's an accumulator. There's some uh, mechanical things in the helicopter that allow you to, to land it. So we landed it out in the rice paddy. And, uh, and uh, I set up security outside the helicopter laying next to a, uh, uh, a, a dirt dike that was uh, about maybe 12 inches above the uh, – the, um, maybe six inches above the water level in the rice paddy and the uh, bad guys which were I believe probably NBA they they uh, they saw really an opportunity to uh, capture some helicopter guys so they came out across the rice paddy and they didn't know what I knew about shooting uh, when I was a kid uh, back in Shafter I used to go out and shoot jackrabbits all the time I know this sounds maybe a little crass uh, uh, not very nice but um, basically there was a squad of them came out across there and I, uh, I took them under fire and immediately the half that survived ran back to the tree line. And, uh, my, uh, my crew chief was mightily improved, uh, impressed cause he's laying right next to me with a uh, M60. He, he never fired a shot because I mowed him down with my M16 and was, uh, you know, I, that all happened within just a few seconds, by the way, uh, uh combat like that happens really quick. And, um, uh, so anyway, uh, we got picked up by another helicopter and got out of there. Um, the thing about it is, uh, is that I carried a rifle, uh, slung over my back seat the whole time I was in Vietnam. And, um, I even went down to a local tinsmith that was a, a, a guy that worked making things at a, uh, sheet metal and had him make me some 40 round magazines. And I ran across a, um, there was no 40 round magazines. Even we didn't have 30 rounds. We still had 20 where I was at. But, um, one of the uh, officers that had come out to inspect the helicopters, uh, he was an um, ordnance officer. He sees this, this gun, uh, rifle, and he sees a, a long curved magazine. He says, where'd you get that magazine? I said, I had it made. And he says, well, does it work? And I said, it works great. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, he was on a, uh, just so you know, this light colonel, um, he, he was upset with us because the uh, door, uh, door gunners, uh, their M60s, uh, I think they call them 240 Bravos now, but the M60, uh, which was a knockoff from a German machine gun in World War II. But anyway, the M60s were uh, cracking out around the receiver after only about uh, two weeks of, sh of shooting. And our unit uh, were going through machine guns uh, like you couldn't believe, the uh, just the door gunners on the helico uh, armed helicopter. And the reason they were cracking out, they were made by GM, General Motors, the uh, door gunners had highly modified these machine guns to fire about 800 rounds a minute. They normally oh. fired about f 500 rounds a minute. And they'd uh, put different springs in them and did all kinds of neat stuff to them, but the they need wear out real fast. So uh, he was trying to figure out what was going on. Unfortunately for him, we knew when he was coming out, and we'd put all of the old stuff back in the machine guns uh, <laughs> before he got out there. So, okay. Got, uh, you go ahead. Uh, just uh, the ingenuity of our crew chiefs and door gunners was, was outstanding. 
Boy, that pays off. Real quick, you so you had did you have two two basically mechanics on board, or was one actually a mechanic slash door gunner, and then the other one was just a straight gore, we door had, gunner? We had we had a a school trained uh, Fort Eustis, Virginia uh, that's mechanic. Where I went. That's where I went. That's where you went, right? Yep. That's a sm- the smartest people in that whole crew was the guys that went through Fort Eustis. Okay, I, I I happily acknowledged how smart my my crew chiefs were, and I still say that. Anyway, then we had a a guy that was a door gunner that was from the infantry that got tired of slogging around in the mud and went over to the helicopters, and it was an exciting job because you're in shootouts every day. If you're an adrenaline junkie, yeah. uh, the back seat was the place to be. They got more kills than we did with the miniguns and rockets. Uh, uh, basically, the miniguns and rockets was to keep everybody's head down till we could flare out, get down low, and kill them with the machine guns. And so um, that, uh, then we had a maintenance platoon uh, in our company, uh, our slicks were boomerangs, and the gunships were, as I said earlier, were bounty hunters. And then we had a maintenance platoon called Weenut, and there was about 100 guys in that. And they would augment my crew when there was a 100-hour inspection. Well, their military didn't do 100 hours, but when there was a phase inspection or something, they would send somebody to help often. But just a daily and clean the filters uh, and get the helicopter greased up and ready to go for the next day with just that one crew chief. And the door gunner would take the door uh, the door guns in, clean them, put them in the armory, and then come back out and help the crew chief. Mm. He basically turned it, and he's probably just as good as a mechanic by the end of that that deployment, I bet. Well, he uh, uh, some of our door gunners learned so much about it, they became crew chiefs. They still had 11 Bravo uh, MOSs, but... They they could uh, they could do the uh, pull the filters reset uh, you know really do a in in depth inspection of the helicopter and you know these helicopters were getting really beat up badly um, uh, I mean you were pulling uh, fast turns pedal turns yeah uh, you know bleeding off almost every takeoff was uh, the RPM was bleeding off and you know it's all it, it, so they didn't last long. A typical uh, one that went back to the States for rehab probably maybe only had 1,200 or 1,500 hours. I never hardly saw one that had more than 1,500 hours on it, and it was already on its way back to be rehabilitated. Mm. Do you Now, going back to that story when basically, you basically got shot down, right? From yes, elect, Like correct. you said, a lucky mm-hmm. shot. Yeah, but... Yeah, but see, shooting a helicopter down is usually, um, you're a dove, you're a hunter, and uh, you shoot, shot doves where they sort of flutter to the ground, you know? Yeah. That's the way, thank God, they don't blow up like in right, the movies right. and crash on a ball of Spin in circles down all the way down. You, you better be ready to uh, fight on the ground. And uh, uh, in Vietnam, they had, in our area, they had a $25,000 reward for any pilots they could capture. And matter of oh. fact, they did capture some... Um, OV-1 Mohawk pilot, a pilot and a uh, observer one night, and we, we hunted for those guys for a week flying at night. And it's really scary flying at night because you can see all the tracers. I didn't ever like flying at night. I don't mind flying at night. You know me. I flew EMS after mm. after uh, after after Vietnam, but um, 
I didn't like seeing all those tracers. During the day, you didn't see all the tracers. Yeah, so you, you didn't realize how many bullets <laughs> yeah, were actually coming at people. you. Huh? Yeah. And so these two guys got shot down in a Mohawk. We were looking for them. That's a, a, a twin engine. Uh, not a lot of people know what a Mohawk is, but it's a uh, observation aircraft that uses side-looking radar and all that stuff. But anyway, they uh, got shot down, and the observer was a, a lieutenant commander from the Navy that was just out on a lark taking a flight at night for the hay oh, of it and got shot down. He had a crypto clearance. And so uh, they were, we were looking for him really hard. And some civilian guy in khaki pants had got up in front of a bunch of us and said that if, uh, if you got a chance to put a rocket up his butt, go ahead and do it. And, and I, I just told my guys, we're not going to kill this guy. We're going to try and capture him. His name was uh, Lieutenant White. You look it up on the internet, but White was uh, captured and was a POW eventually. And I got to meet him many years later and told him that was one of the guys looking for him after he got shut down. So he wasn't well favored, it sounds like. Well, he well, he was a a targeting officer in, uh, I believe, uh, uh, the Navy. And uh, so he knew a lot of stuff. Uh, and they did capture him. And he did spend, I think, four or five years in the POW camp. I, I don't oh, really man. know much more than that. I'm sure there's a book written about him. Yeah, I can't imagine that. So now you you were you you got shot down. You're on the ground. You're fighting back. I mean, what happened after that? Like, did did one of your sister ships come down after it was clear? Yeah, well, they tried you? to. They tried to, but they kept getting shot at. You know, so you don't want to get one of your buddies get shot down. Yeah. So we were hunkered down. They couldn't get to us. They were skipping rounds out across the water. And I remember laying there in the. Uh, in that water, and I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, the Vietnamese use human excrement to uh, fertilize often. And I was laying there, and a uh, a big round, a brown thing about 12 inches long came floating by me, and it didn't bother me at all. I was pretty happy to just be in that water. <laughs> oh, man. You're just happy to be alive. Yes, exactly. Oh, and I think that's been my life story. You know, I think you... We've worked enough to, around each other to oh. realize that I'm a pretty, I'm pretty happy to just be alive. You know, when I look around at who's, I'm 71, and when I look around at who's ava- who's still alive, I mean, they're dropping like flies. So I, every time I wake up in the morning, I say, I'm very happy to be here, you know. And, you know, Ken, how do you keep that perspective for 70 years? You know, because that, I, there's some, like you said, there's so many if we're, if we're not careful, we can all sit there and find something to complain about and being happy about. But it's like, that's not living. That's not going to, it's, I, I don't want to live like that. You know, it's terrible. I don't know. Wh- I don't know what, what your audience is. And I don't really care at this point. Uh, but I, I'll tell you where, where I, I've been a, um, a church goer. And it's, I'm not always been a big fan of organized religion. Don't get me wrong. However, I do go to church quite regularly and I feel refreshed after going and hearing the pastor uh, give a sermon or going to Sunday school and, and, and studying the Bible and being around Christians. And now they're, uh, they're not like me. They're not all perfect uh, or you, but um, they're, they're nice people to be around. I feel comfortable around them. And I think that helps me keep the proper perspective to know that in this country, there's a vast majority of good people. If you just l- listen to what the radio or TV says yep. about people, you think, man, there's really bad people. But guess what? Um, 
I just got back from Africa. I think I told you I was in Africa a couple of weeks ago, or about a week ago now. And I, my uh, one of my uh, guides there, he was a, a black dude. His name was William, and um, he'd been in the Angolan War, uh, Angola War between South Africa and uh, Angola, where the Angolans had the uh, Chinese and the Cubans there fighting. Anyway, he was wounded and, and he's about 55 and that war was in the early 80s and anyway he uh him and i got to talking and uh he spoke perfect english that's the uh, national uh language there in namibia which is just north of uh, south africa anyway he he we got to talking and it turns out he was a deacon in his church and i go are you are you baptist and he says no i'm methodist so i said oh, i'm really glad to meet you and i said what's neat about uh, fellow Christians meeting like this is that you may be black on the outside, but you and I are are, are the same color on the inside. And it was a very, very meaningful meeting and talking to him about his uh, uh, how he felt about things and uh, and what he was going through in his life. He's a good man, and there's a lot of good people. Um, the, our 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 media would have us believe otherwise, but even in this country, there's especially a lot of good people, and that's what I focus on. Mm, yeah, and you, that's I'm I'm hundred percent with you. I th- I think the only way that you can find true true uh, deep joy and happiness is you know through uh, that. And and people know that on my channel, I I say it. You know, I we pray and stuff, and through prayer and reading the Bible and uh, having. Jesus in your heart. I mean, that's, that's hundred percent what I believe. And I have practiced that myself and, and it's not, you know, it's not about religion because it's a really, there's a lot of different religions, but when we have him living in our heart and living our lives, amen, he's, he's the only one that can make a, a difference in it. But so I appreciate that. And it's, it, I'm like you, I've been to uh, Haiti, you know, I've been to, I've only, well, several countries, I guess, some not by choice and for pleasure, but the other ones, you know, like Haiti, we went over there and it was pretty cool because, you know, they that that place is a place that has really been plagued just by just, you know, bad government and bad decisions. A lot of I mean, we walked we first got there, we were driving down the road and there there's dead a dead guy right laying on the sidewalk and people are just stepping over him and like he wasn't even there. I mean, that's just a normal thing to them, but. But then right. we did meet up with the people that, you know, were that went to church and stuff. And it was pretty neat being somewhere like that. And I went to Mexico several times, but getting kind of. Just, so you, just so you know, uh, you, that was a mission trip you're probably on. Our church has had a couple of mission trips. We have some missionaries that we support down there, too. And, um, you know, uh, my hat's off to you if we're going on one of those mission trips. No, no, I, I actually enjoy it. And it's it's good. We we're helping build up some stuff for their school and stuff like that. So using a little bit of her skills of uh, construction from the past to be able to yeah really exactly that's yeah. that yeah that's exactly right yeah. well uh, anyway to answer the to further amplify uh, why I'm happy um, I, I had a mom that was a very happy and, and and a very smart person and a dad that was there and you know they talk about white privilege well white privilege is simply, uh, you can be black and have white privilege. You can call it black privilege or brown privilege, whatever kind of privilege. The privilege part is to have two parents that love you, and um, and 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 are with you your formative years. You know mm-hmm. um, that that is the to me that sets you up for success. I don't care what color you are. Yeah, I agree. Well, 
Maybe uh, I I wanted to double check with you, Ken. I thought that wasn't the only time you went down in Vietnam, was yeah. it? No, uh, I got uh, the day that I um, I got shot down over in the Yumen Forest, um, but uh, I had two shoot downs. Um, one was the hydraulic shot out. The other one was an engine. Ron went through the Lycoming. Those Lycoming engines would say what you want about them, but they were really fantastic engines. It went through it, and it flew another, oh, five or ten minutes before it finally gave up the ghost, and we went down. Um, you know, keep in mind, if people are not familiar with helicopters, when the engine quits, there's a, 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 a situation that occurs in helicopters. It's called auto-rotation, and that's where um, the uh, rotor blades disengage from the drivetrain and are freewheeling. So if you have RPM in your rotor blades, then uh, you come down uh, in, in a semi-controlled fashion, depending on the uh, the pilot's capabilities, and uh, you flare, you decelerate uh, close to the ground in the Huey at about 50 to 75 feet, you start deceleration, and then as you level out, you slow down, and as you get near the ground, then you use that inertia from the rotor blades, and that's what we did. We landed uh, in some brush in... Uh, uh, again, uh, somebody see the the thing about ha- working with the Ninth Division and the First Aviation Battalion, our First Aviation Brigade, is we had other helicopters around us. We weren't out there by ourselves, and we we really relied on each other. Uh, I have not seen it, but a, one of our units, uh, sister units, had a helicopter crash. Another helicopter came in, was shot down. A third helicopter came in, was shot down, and finally the fourth helicopter came in and picked everybody up. And that tells you the commitment that we had to each other. And that's why we're so tight now as uh, when we go to the reunion, it's like I, I it's like I've been with them my whole life. Mm. And uh, uh, you get you, you get the feeling of that camaraderie. Uh, I never had to uh, go very far from the crash, uh, maybe 100 yards to be picked up. And I'm a little bit shorter than I used to be uh, from the vertical forces, but um I'm very lucky that I don't have back problems, and a lot of pilots have back problems because of the vertical G's uh, when they hit. Oh, I bet. Well, so that one, the one that you went down with the engine, you had no idea when the engine, did you, when the round went in there? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that last part. Did you, you had you didn't know that the round went through the engine, right? Before, no, or you no. just basically lost it. And Well, I thought it was a, um, uh anomaly. I thought, I thought my EGT... Uh, had gone out because it just spiked. It went from, uh, you know, 700 degrees to a <laughs> thousand degrees immediately. And I thought, wow, that gauge is out. Lights on the dash. And then all of a sudden we start losing our PM. You realize, oh, yep, engine's gone. Uh, so now, now, is there a lot of, <clears throat> was it, I guess it just depends, but was there a lot of tree? Because I've talked to some other Vietnam pilots and they were talking about how to do an auto if you lost an engine how to put it down in the trees because they were saying or maybe that was you ken tell me how they would come tail down which totally goes off well, of what you're <laughs> want to do the human force did have trees and uh one of my wingmen got shot down and he said they landed on top of the trees and everybody's like uh okay and hear the tick 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 of the engine winding down and they're sitting there and then all of a sudden they fall about 20 feet to the about the center of the trees, they're still okay, and then they fall another twenty feet to the ground. So, you know, you had you had a uh, you they were lucky, you know. Wow. But uh, generally, where I was at in the Delta, 
was pretty flat. I mean, the highest terrain feature uh, was some mountains up on the Cambodian border called the Three Sisters. And uh, uh, they were up maybe 2,000 or 3,000 feet above the uh, the rice paddies and everything. Uh, we were influenced, tidal influence. We were quite a ways inland from the uh, South China Sea. But the tide going in and out, you would see that when you'd be flying, you know, with the water level going up and down where we were at. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, and by the way, hey, one last thing, uh, or one thing. We had the Navy guys there called the Brownwater Navy, and we landed on the LSTs all the time uh, to get refueled and rearmed. And they had armed helicopters there. They were called the Seawolves, and they had uh, B-model gunships. And uh, they flew exclusively around the Navy guys. We went in and out and used their facilities to land on the fantails of these LSTs. And every time we would land, there'd be a Navy guy come out and hand each one of us an ice-cold Coca-Cola. And, you know, it's 95 degrees or 98 with 98% humidity, and that Coke tasted so good. I can taste it right now. (laughs) There's just some things you never forget, huh? That's right. So you went down, just so I get this right, if I put it in the description, you, you went down, what, four times or something you told me? Or something? Well, uh, you know, here's, here, at, when, when you say go down, um, you know, you would, we would, uh, I had three uh, situations where we weren't able to get to a road or to a fire base, you know, where we were, where right. we were shot, where mm-hmm. that's where we went down, picked up. Within a few minutes, all all of those times, no, I didn't. I was not nearly. But uh, I was not going to become a a, uh, a POW. But then you get shot. Our helicopters getting the heck shot out of them. And I mean, we had patches on top of patches. Mm-hmm. Um, and but generally speaking, helicopters are not as as fragile as some people would like to believe. And mm-hmm. you could limp into a fire support base put it down and then they'd send out a hook, a Chinook and they'd sling it back into our base and we'd be fine within a day or two. Uh, rotor blades were problematic because you, you get a hole through them and you'd make a lot of noise and maybe a vibration and you'd want to get it on the ground. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, I, let me ask you one last thing before we're not, to me, I didn't feel like we scratched the service and we're going to, if you ever have time again, we're definitely going to get together and talk some more about it. But uh, one last thing, it's, um, Thomas kind of start. He was he's at work right now, so co-host wasn't able to be part of this. But um, he he came up with this idea, and I thought it's a good idea to add into every podcast. Give me give me your craziest story in v- from Vietnam that you think you ever had. The the scariest one, the craziest or scariest, whatever. The something. craziest one. I I can I can tell you about that. Okay. Um, I was flying a CNC, and um, they uh, they everybody left except me and the helicopter. And I had uh, I don't think Hackworth was in the back that day. And uh, this one guy with a rifle goes right running down a uh, a, a trail down below us. So I uh, I uh, I have the door gunner start shooting at him, and he, the door gunners in the CNC they were flying normally at three thousand, and they didn't really know. Uh, as good, you know, as they weren't very good with their machine guns. Let's face it, compared to my uh, when I was flying gunships, and uh, they shot, the shot, shot, shot. You know, maybe a hundred, two hundred rounds, shooting all around this guy, and he's just running faster. So then I switch it over to the uh, crew chief side, and he shoots one shot at jams, and um, 
bang, and then I, 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 I look back there, and he's back there fiercely trying to clear a malfunction. So uh, I put it back on the other side, shoot, 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 nothing. Going, Tracer's going through this guy's clothes, uh, under his legs, I mean, and he's really running for it. And so then he comes to a uh, bunker and dives in the bunker and hits his head on the overhead beam at the doorway, sort of knocks him back and sort of unconscious. Now he's laying, looking up at us, and the uh, crew chief now has his gun back up. So I hover down sideways to have him shoot it, and then I realize, you know what? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kill this guy. And so I, I pull the nose around where the crew chief can't shoot. And he was pretty upset about it. Matter of fact, everybody in the whole crew was upset about it except me. And I said, you know what? We're gonna let this guy live. And so we did. And I don't know whatever happened. And I had some people say, yes, that was a good idea. But it, I was the guy that was in charge of who lived and died that day. And I decided I wanted him to live. What What made you decide that? Yeah. Well, um, the hap- helplessness of him. Yeah. And his previous. Um, brushes with death i sort of saw myself laying there i mean i have had shot uh helmets shot holes in heel of my boot was shot off uh and i had my seat hit numerous times with it uh we had armored plated seats and 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 he survived all that now he's helpless and all i have to do is just let the uh put a little right pedal in and and the crew chief's going to kill this guy with a machine gun i thought nope i'm not that's i'm not going to do it so like you said, that, was... that makes that is a crazy story, and it kind of makes you wonder. When he woke up, he I guarantee you just wondered, did it change his life? And think, you know what? These guys could have killed me. They should have killed me. And why didn't they kill me? You wonder, you know? Sure, you know. And he was probably about my age at that time. I was twenty two, I think, by that time, and he wasn't much older than that. If he was any, it might have been like eighteen or nineteen, and. uh he sort of wonder where if he if he survived the war, you know. Yeah, yeah, I understand people that go to Vietnam now as tourists. The typical Vietnamese has no no concept of of the war. Really? You know, they, you're right. They, why? Why just, is that? Because they they they've never taught it in school, and they the uh, younger generation has never heard about the war. They they don't. A, there's a just a vague uh, vague information about the war. Wow. Over there. Yeah, is they, wow, is it right. because they don't want him to know? I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. I just know that it's uh, I the typical farmer where we were at, those were rice farmers, I hate to say this, is no no worse off or probably no better off now than he was when, well, he's probably better off because we're not dropping bombs on his rice fields, but um, they, they uh, you know, they're... They're doing fine over there. Let's put it that way. They're the, but they're the same level as they were back then without the... Exactly. Wow. Without all the war, yes. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to wrap that up. I appreciate you taking your time out of your day, Ken, to get together and do this. It was I enjoyed every second of it, and it went by a lot faster. As always, it goes by too fast, and I'm already looking at the time like, man, I wish it had another three sessions of these to do. But I appreciate your service, and I'm excited for you to get that DFC here what you say in october so thank you guys if you guys enjoyed this podcast with ken um, we'd like to have him back on again but uh, give this podcast a five stars and write a review and tell us what you think and thoughts on it and uh thank you ken for your time and thank you for your service my honor thank you we'll see you guys on the next one <laughs>